Well, before I get to my official remarks, it is a birthday party. Does it feel like a celebration? Yeah, yeah thank you very much. I, let's begin this evening with a big welcome and thanks for the music uh, to Indaji, Banjiri, and Shantital Shah. Thank you all so much for uh, being with us tonight. Thank you. We'll give just a second for them to make their way off the stage. And uh, as they do that, I want you to do one thing for me. How many of you are here in the Rothko Chapel for the first time? Quite a few folks. Well, to you, a very, very special welcome. And I'll say this a couple of times. After the program tonight, we'll have a reception on the plaza. And uh, part of what we like to do with that is a way to continue the conversation, making friends, making uh, connections as uh, part of our contribution collectively to a city of respect, a city that appreciates diversity in form, function, music, people, backgrounds. And part of that is it's not only about institutions, but more importantly, it's about building a movement. So thank you all for being here. Now, the other thing I would ask you to do, a couple of just ha basic housekeeping items or rules of the chapel. One is if you could turn off or silence your cell phone, that would be great. Uh, the second one is please refrain from taking pictures unless you're kind of the official photographer for the evening. We do post uh, photographs of our events on the website. We're also video recording this, so the whole program will be on our website in the next few days. The reason for that is very important because when we do that, we do so that we honor each other's presence. We're more attentive to each other. The second reason for that is that we honor our speakers and we're more attentive to our speakers and the message they bring. And the third thing is it allows us to really have the uh, full experience of being in this wonderful place that was created by the Demonils, by Jean and Dominique Demonil, the wonderful paintings of Mark Rothko, and I think for a moment of doing something which is almost a radical act these days of disconnecting, we're actually more presence with one another and it's a, it's a good way to be at least for the next couple of hours. Um, the other thing I would like to do is that uh, after this evening, we will have a uh, gathering on the plaza and I'll give some instructions to that at the end of the night. So as we gather tonight at the Rothko Chapel in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, we are acutely aware that we live in a time of destructive hyperpartisanship, differentiation, and division, and the impact that those have on our local and global relationships. Equally disturbing in the world today, we live at a time where the use of violence is all too often justified as a means to further political aims and to silence the voices of the social justice, social justice champions wherever they may be found. As such, within that context, it is indeed timely that we focus our attention on the influence and impact of Mahatma Gandhi and his impact on Dr. King as a social change leader, as well as their collective use of nonviolence to challenge the powers and principalities of the day. As Dr. King preached in a sermon dedicated to Gandhi at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church on Palm Sunday, March 22, 1959, after his trip to India. He said, and I quote, Mahatma Gandhi was able to achieve for his people independence through nonviolence means, without lifting a gun or uttering one curse word. 
He had no weapons. He had no army in terms of military might. Gandhi followed the way of love and nonviolence, refusing to hate and refusing to follow the way of violence. For violence in its aftermath is always bitterness, while in the aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community so that the, when the battle is over, it's over, and new love and new understanding and new relationship come into being between the oppressed and the oppressor. These words complete with the sacrifice of both Gandhi and Dr. King that transcend time and space, help strengthen our collective resolve to be bulwarks and agents against complacency and apathy, and to support one another as we give voice and transformative action to the sacred causes of justice and peace. Towards this end and these ends, this program is offered within the context of the Houston Gandhi Susquecentennial, a multi-sector community-supported initiative celebrating the 150th anniversary of Gandhi's birth, which will be celebrated in October this year. In your program, there's a website link that will give you uh, updates on all the activities happening throughout the region during this year, the Susquecentennial year. I want to recognize tonight a good friend to many of us here, and really the heartbeat behind the Susquecentennial, Atul Katari, who's the executive director of the Gandhi Library, who I can tell you very personally is a great friend, is someone who has given so much for us tonight to get here this evening. Atul, could you stand so you can be recognized? Thank you so much. <clears throat> I also want to recognize the members of the Susquecentennial Advisory Board, the board of the Gandhi Library who are here tonight, the board of the Rothko Chapel, my staff colleagues and numerous volunteers and donors and underwriters for it's indeed a collective effort to present a program of this magnitude and contemporary importance. Can we give a round of applause just for all the people that make this happen? Thank you all so much. Now to further set the context for this evening, it's my honor to introduce someone who really needs no introduction, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, who will share a few words. Mayor Turner was elected in December 2015 and is serving his first four-year term as Houston's 66, 62nd mayor. Mayor Turner is a lifelong resident of Houston and lives in the Acres Homes community where he grew up with eight siblings and is a graduate of the University of Houston and earned a law degree from Harvard University. Prior to his election as mayor, Turner served for 27 years in the Texas House of Representatives for District 139. His interest in equity is clearly seen in one of the mayor's signature initiatives, Complete Communities, which aims to improve the quality of life for residents in all our neighborhoods, and his interest in furthering Houston's reputation and reality as one of the most diverse cities in the United States was captured this fall in his mission to India, which included a visit to the Mahatma Gandhi Memorial. Mayor Turner, it's indeed a privilege to have you here at the Rothko Chapel. Welcome.
Let me start off by thanking David for a very gracious, gracious introduction. I certainly too want to acknowledge the musicians that were on the stage today, uh, this evening. And then uh, to Ambassador Ray, Council General Ray, it's always good to see you. Uh, to Ambassador Rao, uh, to Reverend Dr. Bernard Lafayette. Let me put these glasses on, uh, I'm not going anywhere. Um, to Mr. Katari, to the board, to Reverend Lawson. It's always good to be with you and to see you. And then to your uh, young daughter, uh, Melody Lawson, very young, and to representatives of the Roscoe Chapel. And ladies and gentlemen, let me just say that this is a very special evening, and I certainly wanted to be here. And I know we're going to be uh, acknowledging and giving tribute to Martin Luther King and to Gandhi, those two individuals. But I also want to start off by adding a third personality that I think both of them um, um, kind to emulate in many, many ways, and that was Martin Luther of the 1500s. And he said something that I've always carried with me. Martin Luther said, uh, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to, to, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And then he went on to say, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, those three individuals, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, and Gandhi have so much, have so much in common. On a trade mission to India on November the 1st, I visited the Gandhi Memorial Museum in New Delhi. It was a profound and moving experience to trace Gandhi's final steps and learn more about his contributions to the world. The museum had an editorial cartoon framed on a wall, and it showed Dr. King and Gandhi in the afterlife. And Gandhi says, the odd thing about assassins, Dr. King, is that they think they have killed you. The reality is they may have killed the person. They never killed the movement or the dream. Here in Houston, we are looking to build a Gandhi Museum of our own to highlight his message. And I understand that several representatives of this project are with us tonight. The Eternal Gandhi Museum, as the project is called, has secured $2 million in commitments towards its total budget of $8.5 million. Just as Dr. King found during his historic visit to India, I enjoyed the warm welcome, hospitality, and access we were given to all levels of government and the spiritual community to learn about Indian society as well as successful social programs and ideas that can be adapted and replicated outside of India. Dr. King, being informed by his own faith and inspired by the methods of Gandhi, a man who, have, who lived half the world away and was of different faith, shows that we have much to learn from one another. In so many communities around the world, we share the same values and similar challenges. We can look to each other for inspiration and solutions. I was 14 when Martin Luther King died, but I remembered his speeches uh, as a kid growing up. And then later on in life, Reverend Lawson, I would get some of his speeches and go in front of the mirror and practice and give it as if I was, as if I was Dr. Martin Luther King. One of the things I've always remembered is something that he said, the darkest night is just before the dawn. And then he would say fleecy locks and black complexion cannot forfeit nature's claim, for skin may differ, but affections dwell in white and black the same. And were I so tall as to reach the pole or to grasp the ocean at a span, 
I must be measured by my soul, for the mind is the standard of every man. Tonight, we salute them both. We also have with us tonight a very special guest, Council General of India Houston, Dr. Anupum Ray. Dr. Ray is a physician by education and was a neurosurgery resident before he joined the Indian Foreign Service in 1994. His career has included postings in Germany, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, England, and was a senior member of the Indian team and the UN Security Council in New York. In addition to a medical degree, he has an MA in public administration, and he served in Houston since April of 2016. I just want to say, Dr. Ray, thank you so much for your personal support for this evening's program, for the support that's been given by your staff colleagues at the consulate, for just the wonderful hospitality you've extended to us as part of putting this program together. Thank you for being with us this evening. <clears throat> Mayor Turner, Ambassador Rao, Mr. Lopestin, Mrs. Lafayette, David, thank you for your kind introduction. I am one of the people who's been to this chapel before, and uh, I, uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable uh, uh, building, and it's a statement of a remarkable purpose. Uh, the, the, the idea of having a chapel like this, and I think, represents the kind of city that Houston aspires to be. And we are very proud to be associated with uh, an event in this chapel that uh, talks about the common links between our two countries through the lives of these two great individuals. You know, we are a nation. India is an ancient nation. We've been around for thousands of years. And we are a nation that has endured thousands of years through ups and downs, good times, bad times days, evil days, good days. We have produced times of, you know, where, where there were times of plenty, there were times when we had really hard times. And one of the things that helped us cope, or which helped us along this journey, is the presence of transcendent characters like Mahatma Gandhi. You know, they provide the compass by which we, in difficult times, sometimes which lasted for hundreds of years, we steered towards a far shore. There was a moral compass that guided our nation. You know, today, it is a good thing to be Indian. We are the fastest growing economy in the world. We expect to become the next permanent member of the UN Security Council. And this is a journey we've made in 70 years, one lifetime. In 1947, we were a subject nation. This, this will come our way. Nothing can stop us. But that is not what is going to make, make us a great nation. What is going to make us a great nation is if we remember the lessons that Mahatma Gandhi taught us, that we will be judged by how we treat the weakest in our, in our society, by how we treat our women, by how we behave 
with other nations of the world. And that is what Mahatma Gandhi means to us. He continues to be uh, uh, relevant to us. And hopefully, we will succeed by his standards. That is what uh, uh, we aspire to be. You know, the United States is the oldest democracy in the world. We are the largest democracy in the world. This is the largest economy in the world. We are the fastest growing economy in the world. But ultimately, what unites us is, I think, the, the first three words of both our constitutions, we the people. You know, this is what we learned from the United States. This is what we believe is the key to good governance, the key to becoming a great nation. And when we talk of we the people, it's the links between what Gandhi taught and what Martin Luther King learned. We in India also want to be a nation where we are judged by the content of our character and not the color of our skin. Like Mayor Turner, I've listened to many of his speeches and this is one line that I remember. I know that uh, uh, David is going to introduce Ambassador Rao, but uh, I'd like to add a, a few things about her. The Mahatma Gandhi used to say that be the change that you want to be. Mrs. Rao is quite an incredible person uh, when we look at her in any context. But when you look at her in the Indian context, I don't know how many of you will appreciate how much she has achieved in her life. Uh, you know, it's difficult to get into the Indian Foreign Service. A half a million of us write the exam. She came first in the exam in 1973. And this is an exam in which you uh, uh, are essentially judged uh, with, uh, without any uh, it doesn't matter where you came from. Okay. Just what matters is how good you are at writing that exam. Uh, she has held positions of enormous authority. She was the head of the diplomatic service in India. Uh, she uh, was uh, my boss. Uh, and uh, uh, as I said yesterday, a boss who was not to be uh, taken lightly, I, I still continue to hold her in the enormous, reg enormous regard. She was ambassador of India to China and ambassador of India to the United States. Uh, I worked with her on the Sri Lanka desk where I found that uh, in the midst of a war, she was fearless. So what you see of her is not necessarily uh, the full picture. And I just tried you know, to complete uh, uh, that picture. And I did so because I believe that when Mahatma Gandhi talked about taking India forward, it is the content of lives like Ambassador Rao's that she was talking about. She lived the change that Mahatma Gandhi wanted us to be. And that's why I'm proud to have her here, proud to be associated with this event, and uh, sure that it will be an evening that all of us will remember. Thank you. With these words of introduction, it's now time to turn to the heart of tonight's program and welcome to the stage our special guests and speakers, former Ambassador Nirupuma Rao, 
and the Reverend Dr. Lafayette. Joining them this evening is award-winning native Houstonian journalist and Rothko board member, Melanie Lawson, who will do further introductions and moderate the program. And I want to say one thing about Melanie's love for the Rothko Chapel. She was pitching this today at 5.30 on the evening news. So we want to thank you for that and for your, for your constant presence and willingness to be part of the life here. And I also want to say one more word about the Reverend William Lawson, who's sitting right up front here. Um, as uh, the mayor and others have said, he is a civil rights champion uh, who resides in this city of Houston, but whose reach extends far beyond this place. The other thing you all may not know is that he was here at the dedication and spoke at the dedication of the chapel and the broken obelisk, Barnett Newman's broken obelisk, dedicated to the life and legacy of Dr. King in 1971. So I don't know Reverend Lawson, but I have a sneaking suspicion that Jean and Dominique de Manil, if they were physically present here tonight, they would say this is exactly what I hope we hoped that the Rothko Chapel would be about as a force in this city for bringing people together, for connecting us between the local and the global and across cultures and across time and space, and to do the most important thing, that is, inspire us and give us fuel for the journey when we go back outside of these doors to continue to make right in the world we have. So I don't know Reverend Lawson, but I have a sneaking suspicion that this is what was intended when this was dedicated in 1971. We are so pleased to have you with us today and for your years and decades of service. Thank you so much. Now, with that, I'm going to close my folder and turn it over to Melanie. Thank you all. Good evening, everybody. Making sure my mic is on. going to have everybody yeah it must be on because I can hear it creaking first of all good evening everyone so thrilled to have you here and certainly uh, on such a momentous night he mentioned that I said something about the Rocco Chapel at the end of uh, our newscast today and I'll tell you the same thing it is closing for renovations in a few weeks and will be closed for the better part of a year. Is that right, David? So not only should you take advantage of it now, but bring a few friends and let them look around because uh, it will be back bigger and better than ever, but this is such a special place and really such a legacy in Houston that I always try to make sure I share it with, only, with friends who come in from out of town and with friends who are here. And it looks like all of us are settled. I'm trying to mess with my mic so it won't fall off on me. But I'm so glad to be here with both of you this evening. So let me dive right in, because I know you may have some questions at the end, and I certainly want to make sure we have time for it, and begin by introducing our guest. And uh, they are very modest looking as they sit up here. They have ginormous legacies of their own. Born in India, Nirupama Rao is a retired Indian diplomat, and that's putting it mildly, foreign secretary and ambassador. She joined the Indian Foreign Service in 73, and during her four-decade-long diplomatic career, 
hard to believe you've been doing anything for four decades looking at you. Uh, she held many important assignments. She was India's first woman spokesperson in the Ministry of External Affairs, the first woman high commissioner from her country to Sri Lanka, and the first Indian woman ambassador to the People's Republic of China, which I think alone bears some uh, acknowledgement. If you all would just applaud for that, that's just extraordinary. She also served as India's Foreign Secretary from 2009 to 2011. Then she was appointed the Ambassador to the United States, where we were privileged to have her. She served from 2011 to 2013. When she retired from active diplomatic service, Ambassador Rao entered the world of academics and was appointed to Brown University in Providence. Since retiring from the Diplomatic Corps again in 2013, she has been a fellow or visiting scholar at Brown University, the New School, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and I believe you're now at Columbia, is that I just correct? Finished. All right, she just finished a stint at Columbia University, one of my alma maters, so great to hear that. But I discovered something you may not know about her. She uses that beautiful voice for something other than just teaching or negotiating. I read this. Uh, she has a way with words and notes in prose, poetry, and music. So after having made a mark as an author and poet, the former foreign secretary and ambassador of India has revived her interest in music. She is a fan of the Beatles, Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan, and so on. And she also plays the guitar, so uh, we may be able to persuade her to do a little singing in a few minutes. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> her secret life when she's not doing diplomacy is playing Beatles records somewhere, don't we all? Reverend Dr. Bernard Lafayette, Jr., an ordained minister and a longtime civil rights activist, organizer, and authority on nonviolent social change. He co-founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, in 1960 and was a core leader of the civil rights movement in Nashville, Tennessee, and in Selma in 65. He directed the Alabama Voter Registration Project in 62 and was appointed by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. to be the National Program Administrator for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, as well as the national coordinator of the 1968 Poor People's Campaign. Dr. Lafayette earned his BA from the American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, Tennessee, and his EDM and EDD from Harvard University. He has served as Distinguished Scholar in Residence and Director of the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies at the University of Rhode Island. He is now presently uh, a member of the faculty at Auburn University. Now, I wanted to sort of go into a little bit of what he did because it was so significant. He was a freshman when he began attending weekly uh, meetings arranged by James Lawson, uh, no, uh, unfortunately no connection there, but who taught nonviolence techniques to Lafayette and his fellow Nashville students, including Congressman John Lewis. Lafayette and his friends began conducting sit-ins at segregated restaurants and businesses as far back as 59 when uh, they organized a conference of students for, on Easter weekend in 1960, that is what gave birth to SNCC. Before the Supreme Court's 1960 ruling in Boynton versus Virginia declaring segregation in interstate uh, travel facilities was unconstitutional, Lafayette and Lewis integrated an interstate bus on their way home from the seminary by sitting at the front and refusing to move. Months later, in 61, he asked a Congress of Racial uh, Equality announcement recruiting students to take part in the Freedom Rides. I know many of you know of that. 
He was unable to go to the first ride because his parents would not allow him to. They wouldn't give him, they wouldn't give him the necessary participate or uh, permit, I guess I should say, permission. But after that, Lafayette and other Nashville students volunteered to continue the rides after the most dangerous ones happened, after the first group of Freedom Riders were attacked in Alabama. In Montgomery, his group was attacked by members of the Ku Klux Klan. He met with, uh, King met with Lafayette, Nash, and Lewis and negotiated on their behalf with the White House and the Department of Justice to ensure their protection in Montgomery and a military escort on their continued journey to Mississippi. He was arrested in Mississippi, served 40 days in the penitentiary, only to be rearrested upon his release for contributing to the delinquency of minors because the students he recruited to ride those buses, many of them were under the age of 18. So when we talk about nonviolence, this is not a concept to this man. He, he is someone who has faced down very violent circumstances in the past. So I gave a little bit longer introduction than I should, but we would love to hear from both of you for a few moments. So. Would you like to go ladies first? Yes. Ambassador, why don't you begin? Thank you, Melanie. Consul General Ray, Mr. Leslie, Reverend Lawson, Mayor Turner, thank you for being here today. Reverend Lafayette, distinguished guests, dear friends. It's wonderful to be here at this very historic venue, the Rothko Chapel, and to speak about two very historic, timeless figures, Mahatma Gandhi and the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. The theme for today's event has been our focus on the lives of the, these two great people and the linkages between them and through them the linkages between the history of our two nations, especially the recent history of our two nations, our two democracies. Here as the second decade of the 21st century draws to a close, it is very relevant that we discuss the legacy of two of the 20th century's greatest figures, Mahatma Gandhi and the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. I don't know if this is my mic no, or not. Uh, her mic is uh, touching her necklace. All right, I wonder if one of our audio guys can rescue us for a quick moment. So that we can... Is that better? Yeah. Well, I knew something was banging somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you can adjust that. Very good. Thank you. Um, these two immortals, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., never met with each other. But let us say that they are united by a divine and, you might say in today's language, high-speed telepathy, a music of the spheres. And since you mentioned my love of music, I brought this analogy in. They're like two tenors for the ages. Yeah. <laughs> and each one takes up where the other leaves off. They walk the paths of peace and seem to possess that night vision, as it were, 
to negotiate the darkness of conflict, the minefields, and the limb-tearing traps. Their voices resound. They need no amplification. They resonate, and calendar years fly away as they speak. Who were these two individuals, these immortals, to use a term that the Chinese use for heroic figures in their history? Both grew up in middle-class families where they did not want for anything, surrounded by loving parents and family, educated in quality institutions of learning, and possessed by an unquenchable yearning for knowledge in a world beyond mere territorial boundaries. They were not terribly outstanding students, but they were thinking, reflective human beings. Somewhere along the road, in the early summers of their lives, they discovered the power of taking on oppression and discrimination, prejudice and injustice through nonviolent action, through principled action, which was more than just strategic or tactical, because it became an embodiment of what they lived and breathed as human beings. Gandhi and King. Chronologically, of course, Gandhi comes first. King was younger than Gandhi by 60 years. In Hindu belief, one's 60th birthday is when one is literally born again. So I think of Martin Luther King, Jr. as Gandhi's reborn avatar. That's lovely. Reborn in a segregated United States of America, the crucible of modern democracy, which has struggled constantly to purify her soul. And that is America's greatness to me, the struggle to purify her soul and rid it of the residual dross and the debris of flawed practice despite the founding freedoms. In an imagined gallery of immortals, they, King and Gandhi, Gandhi and King, stand side by side or they face each other, engaged in dialogue, even debate, seeking truth, clarity, their ideas supplementing each other. It is a conversation perhaps clo watched closely by Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Older than both of them, but equally engaged in this exercise of the examination of conscience. Remember the examined life that the Greeks spoke of. The examination of conscience and the removal of injustice. Were Gandhi and King the progenitors of nonviolent action? Or do they hold a patent on nonviolent disobedience? Perhaps not. But let us say that they were born globalizers of these trends. Their actions caught the imagination of humankind, creating a path for future generations, and therefore they belong to the ages. They inculcated a culture of peace, forthright, courageous, teaching self-discipline, ethical, a triumph of self-sacrifice, and spirituality in appealing to the spirit of service in each of us, tapping that mother load that remains quiescent until it is awoken by inspirational leadership. I'm reminded of the words of Haruki Murakami 
in his Jerusalem Prize acceptance speech in 2009, and I'll quote from those words, if there is a hard high wall and an egg that breaks against it, no matter how right the wall or how wrong the egg, I will stand on the side of the egg. Why? Because each of us is an egg, a unique soul enclosed in a fragile egg. Each of us is confronting a high wall. The high wall is the system which forces us to do the things we would ordinarily not see fit to do as individuals. We are all human beings, individuals, fragile eggs. We have no hope against the wall. It's too high, too dark, too cold. To fight the wall, we must join our souls together for warmth, for strength. We must not let the system control us, create who we are. It is we who created the system." Unquote. Both Gandhi and King were the fighters against that system of hard, high walls. Or here again are the words of the Iranian-born poet Kamand Kajuri. They want us to be afraid. They want us to be afraid of leaving our homes. They want us to barricade our doors and hide our children. Their aim is to make us fear life itself. They want us to hate. They want us to hate the other. They want us to practice aggression and perfect antagonism. Their aim is to divide us all. They want us to be inhuman. They want us to throw out our kindness. They want us to bury our love and burn our hope. Their aim is to take all our light. They think their bricked walls will separate us. They think their damned bombs will defeat us. They are so ignorant they don't understand that my soul and your soul are old friends. They are so ignorant they don't understand that when they cut you, I bleed. They are so ignorant they don't understand that we will never be afraid, we will never hate, and we will never be silent, for life is ours." Unquote. So here are 21st century words that appeal to the kindness, the love, the hope, the friendship, the courage, the lack of hate that embodied the philosophy of both the leaders we speak of and memorialize today. Unfortunately today, as in the history of our human race, men and women build too many walls and not enough bridges. How do we solve what Dr. King called the great new problem of mankind, learning to live together in peace? Do we tell ourselves that we are not satisfied and will not be satisfied, again in the words of Dr. King, until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream? Let the guns get heavy. Let them put the guns down. It is never too late for nonviolence. The nonviolence that throws its opponents off balance like jujitsu. Gandhi depicted how when a man tries to strike water with a sword, his arm gets dislocated. Both Gandhi and King were ordained masters of political and moral jujitsu. They knew to deploy the right instruments to irrevocably disturb the equilibrium of their opponents. Led by the Mahatma, India's freedom struggle was a revolution, a liberation struggle without bloodshed. 
It inspired countless such revolutions across the world, just as the non-violent struggle of Dr. King against racial discrimination and injustice to African Americans in the United States did. Have their struggles fully culminated? The answer is no. There is still much work that remains in order to achieve that reachable utopia of the human spirit, as I call it. Every map of the world needs to have a country called utopia, yes, I is. believe. And as I call it utopia, or that beloved community of Dr. King, have we got poverty, gender discrimination, racism, and militarism behind us? Have we created a compassionate social and civic order for our nations, especially those of us who pride ourselves in calling ourselves democracies? Does the globalized cosmopolitanism of liberal or liberalized thought and lifestyle feel the pulse of those wounded and physically and psychologically maimed in war? The unemployed workers of those ghost factory towns, the anguish of the inner city. Are we compassionate nations? How can the arc of the universe bend closer and closer towards wisdom, justice, and love? How do we transform the deep gloom of our age into the exuberant gladness of reconciliation tomorrow? There is a sentiment in some African countries today that statues of Gandhi do not deserve to stay and that they must be taken down. He's accused of having made discriminatory statements against Africans during his years in South Africa in the late 1890s and the early 1900s. But, as the writer Pankaj Mishra notes, I quote, compared with other recent targets of political iconoclasts, Gandhi seems an unlikely symbol of racial arrogance, unquote. Both King, Martin Luther King, and Nelson Mandela held Gandhi up as a role model for fighting injustice and discrimination. For many African and African-American opinion makers, he was a man who had achieved what had traditionally been considered impossible, leading human beings of color against colonialism and racial domination in a non-violent struggle that had achieved success and left a lasting impact on history. He was not a stretcher bearer for empire, as some have called him in a very literal description of his role in the Boer War. Of course, we are not here to create or perpetuate hallows around our leaders. We must see them through the lens of history and through the calculus of the ultimate good they achieved. In the case of Gandhi and of King, their political thought resonates today as we struggle with the discontents of globalization, with the marginalization of minorities, with joblessness, and the dilution of democratic values by populist politics. Like Montaigne, nothing human was foreign to either Gandhi or King. Gandhi, through his struggles, personified, as his great-granddaughter Leela Gandhi, who's a professor at Brown University, says, opposition to a widespread striving for the will to power. That was the opposition. In his youth, at the beginning of his life struggle, 
His approach to become a campaign leader against supremacism aimed at all oppressed races and classes had not fully evolved. It had not become all-encompassing in its expanse and its depth. But the evolution had begun. Gandhi wrestled constantly with the snakes of politics, imperialism, racial supremacy, poverty, caste discrimination, and in inequity. His statues may be expunged by some elements, but his greatness will not be denied. Who among us, even the greatest and tallest, is not a work in progress? And did not Gandhi define democracy as that which, I quote, gives the weak the same chance as the strong, unquote, in which, quote, inequalities based on possession and non-possession, color, race, creed, or sex vanish, unquote. As an anecdote, I would like to refer to, in fact, not many discuss the African-American and American connection with one of the earliest incidents in Gandhi's public life. When he was thrown off a first-class compartment of a train in Pietermaritzburg in South Africa on a cold June evening in 1893. Remember, South Africa is in the Southern Hemisphere. As a tired, stranded Gandhi stood on the platform of a railway station, of the railway station, it was an African-American who approached him and offered to take him to a small hotel whose proprietor was American and who would be willing to offer him a place to stay in what was a racially prejudiced neighborhood. And indeed, Mr. Johnston, the American hotel proprietor, did offer Gandhi a room to stay and even, ultimately, invited him to dine with other residents. So it was, so it was that at a time of distress for Gandhi, two Americans showed basic human decency to a fellow human being while others stood by. Martin Luther King said that his spiritual pil pilgrimage to nonviolence began when he was a student at Crozer Seminary and attended a lecture by A.J. Muster, I hope I've pronounced it yeah, properly, Master, on the implications of nonviolence for the ch Christian church. At the same seminary, he heard Mordecai, Mordecai Johnson, president of Howard University, speaking on the significance of Mahatma Gandhi on return from a trip to India. The impact was profound and electrifying, and King left the lecture with the firm resolve to study Gandhi's life's and, life and works. In 1958, Chester Bowles, a former U.S. ambassador to India, wrote in a magazine article that the Montgomery bus boycott paralleled the beginning of Gandhi's struggle at Peter Maritzburg in 1893, just as the Salt March of 1930 for India was to be mirrored in the March on Washington in the August of 1963. The success of both these sets of campaigns was that throughout, their leaders sought to appeal to a higher moral law and not to man-made discriminatory laws. They walked only with God, to quote Dr. King. King expressed his approach in eloquent Gandhian language. The Negro, he said, must come to the point that he can say to his white brothers, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical so force with soul force. 
we will soon wear you down to a, by our capacity to suffer. So in winning the victory, we will not only win freedom for ourselves, but we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that you will be changed also." Unquote. Truly, did Gandhi say, it may be through the African Americans that the unadulterated message of nonviolence will be delivered to the world. Gandhi, in fact, was described by King as having caught the spirit of Jesus Christ more than anybody in the modern world. He called him the greatest Christian of the 20th century, although he was not a member of the Christian church. Jesus, Abraham Lincoln, and Gandhi were all martyred, but their cause lives on. The same fate awaited Dr. King on an April day in 1968, but his cause cannot die. I believe we must focus the memory of Gandhi and King into a beam that illuminates our lives for now and in the future. As the sociologist poet Sinclair Drake said, let us justify the dreamer's dream. In a real sense, all life is interrelated and all men, as Dr. King said, are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And these were Dr. King's immortal words. And to quote Mahatma Gandhi, in a gentle way you can shake the world with, your, with the power of your beliefs, with the power of your conviction, with the power of satyagraha, your devotion to the invincible truth. I know that I probably have over done my 15 minutes and you, well, you should probably ring a bell or something right. but what? let me end I okay. will just take all right that sounds good a nanosecond <laughs> let me end with what Gandhi said to the evangelist E Stanley Jones one of his American friends in 1948 he said I have not seen the American people but give them my love <laughs> and let us celebrate the ageless life of both Mahatma Gandhi the ageless life by the way is a phrase used by the Pakistani poet Faiz Ahmed Faiz when Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated he said Gandhi lived an ageless life so let us celebrate the ageless life of both Mahatma Gandhi and Dr. Martin Luther King in this 150th anniversary of the Mahatma's birth and on Dr. King's 90th birth anniversary. Yes, it's great. Wonderful. Well, thank you for so beautifully and eloquently laying the foundation for this evening in the interrelationship between uh, Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi. I'm going to hand it over now to you, Dr. Uh, Lafayette. Um, and why don't you take a few minutes because as she talks about sort of the, the philosophy and, and the likeness of the two men, as I say, you lived it. You lived the whole experience of nonviolence. Uh, and I want to hear that about your life. Okay. Well, I want to hear what you have to say. Why don't we start there? Well, I first want to say that uh, you make my job so easy. <laughs> Let's give her another hand. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to get a copy of the rest of that. Thank you. That's wonderful, beautiful. That's wonderful. Yes. Makes my job easy. <laughs> I like it. 
Well, first of all, I want to say that I am so appreciative of being here with you and all of the other uh, dignitaries and members of your organization and the mayor and all the other, you know, uh, dignitaries. This is so special for me. This is April 15th. Yes. I had to turn down a lot of stuff to get here, okay? But this is where I belong. I'm absolutely convinced. But before I uh, get started on my remarks, which will be brief, I can do that, okay? Because although I'm a Baptist preacher, <laughs> and also I was president of the American Baptist College. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, but the first church I pastored was actually um, a Presbyterian church. Yes. They heard me speak at a, a, a funeral, and I did a eulogy, and they came after me. And because elderly members, you know, so they made me the uh, stated supply for the Presbyterian Church. And then I looked for this committee that was supposed to have been searching for a Presbyterian minister. And um, how many years passed? And I said, where are the, what's the committee? You haven't found anybody. And I realized that I had funeralized half the committee. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I'm gonna give you two Sundays a month and you have to use the other two to fill in and find your Presbyterian minister. And so one of the things I said to them earlier on when I first there, got there was, um, how much time do you have in the service for the sermon? Because they did everything else, I did the sermon. They said, well, Reverend, um, we don't put any limit on the sermon, you know, so you can just preach as long as you want to. We leave at 12. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I can I can do this, okay. <laughs> but before I go any further, I want to introduce my uh, friend uh, Virgil Woods. Who, Doctor uh, Woods. Doctor Woods is the one that performed our ceremony. Okay, and his wife Lillian there, mm -hmm. but our wedding ceremony. This is the man who. I did this 47, 49 years ago. How about that? And, That's uh, He's a native, I mean, not a native, but a resident of, uh, mm -hmm. of uh, Houston here. And also but, very uh, involved with Dr. King and the civil rights. Yes, very much so. One of the uh, civil rights leaders. And so I was so happy to, that he could uh, come and be with us. <laughs> in fact, uh, he was in New Jersey <laughs> just the other he flew all the way back, and so I was glad that he made it through the storm, yeah. But my wife, before I go any further, uh, you know, 47 years, and uh, she uh, gave me that uh, confidence and hope and assurance that I would, uh, you know, make it into heaven. <laughs> because the Lord wanted me to be sure I got there, so he sent me an angel oh, to show me the way. Good lie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Kate Lafayette, native of Tuskegee, Alabama. Yes. And uh, so um, I want to um, focus on uh, my experiences with Martin Luther King. So I went to, uh, after the sit-ins and the freedom rides, I decided that we were able to accomplish so much in such a short period of time. In fact, in Nashville, uh, John Lewis and Diane Nash, Jim Lawson, and all those people you know, there was no coincidence that uh, we were able to, you know, finish the Nashville sit-ins in three months. In fact, when we went to Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina to form SNCC, we had already desegregated the lunch counters in Nashville. Marion Barry, I didn't want to leave him out. Okay, all that. We'd finished. So when we went there, there's no coincidence that Marion Barry was the first chairman of SNCC. It's no coincidence that John Lewis was one of the first three chairmen of SNCC, you know? So uh, that uh, its success in Nashville had a, a very profound impact. In fact, the, when CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, decided to halt the Freedom Rides temporarily for a cooling off period because they had gotten uh, the bus that was burned and Anniston, Alabama, and people have been pulled off the bus and in uh, Birmingham, beaten up and then arrested uh, there. Jim Peck had 40-some stitches or maybe 50 in his head. That was terrible. I don't know why people didn't get killed on that Freedom Ride. They almost got killed. <coughs> they tried to when they burned that bus. You know what happened while the people didn't get killed on that bus that was burning? What happened was they were holding the door while the bus was on fire. And some uh, wise or uh, Ku Klux Klan member thought about the fact that that gas tank was in back of the bus and was about to uh, burn because fire, you know, it burned, it exploded. And they turned loose the door and ran for their lives. And by running for their lives, they gave the Freedom Riders a chance to get off the bus wow. before it exploded. Well, no, Corps did not have a backup group, a reserve group. So they temporarily halted the Freedom Riders because they could get some protection from the Alabama, okay, uh, National Guard. And that was in negotiations there. Well, in the meantime, while they were negotiating, uh, those of us in Nashville decided to continue the Freedom Rides. John Lewis was on the original Freedom Ride, and he'd gotten off temporarily to go to Philadelphia to have an have a, to do an interview because he wanted to go to Africa later, and uh, so he was not on the Freedom Rides when the bus was burned there in uh, Anniston, 
and people beaten up in um, Birmingham. Well, those of us in SNCC said, no, we cannot allow violence to stop a nonviolent movement. So we negotiated with CORE to allow us to continue the freedom rides. Now, I couldn't go on the original ride, as she said, <laughs> Lawson, because my parents uh, wouldn't let me go. They wouldn't sign the, you know, the parental permission slip. And my father, when I called him, I asked him if he got the application, you know, and he said, um, yes. So I said, uh, could you just send it back right away? Because, you know, I got to get this material in on time, you know, if I'm going to be accepted on the Freedom Rides. And he said, do you think I didn't read it? <laughs> I said, I was hoping you'd sign it, you know, parental permission. <laughs> He said, I'm not signing your death warrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I understood what he meant because we had already filled out our wills yeah. before we you know, were going to go on the Freedom Rides, who our suits were going to go to and the shoes and everything. We were seminary students, you know, with preacher outfits and everything. So all the other students who were behind, they were just, could you put me in your will? <laughs> <laughs> that was the support we got. Okay. <laughs> So I, I, all my books and things, you know, I found them all over. But now I didn't need parental permission because we weren't going under the auspices of CORE. So we jumped on those freedom rides and we said, let's go. Diane was a spokesperson, so she was not arrested in jail. She was the one that made sure all of us, okay, were organizing uh, together. But I want to stop at this point and say James Lawson Jr., who was mentioned, was the one that trained us. He'd been to India, okay? Wow. He'd studied Martin Luther King. He's 90 years old also this uh, last year. And he uh, was the one that prepared us to understand that we uh, must follow Martin Luther King's approach and Mahatma Gandhi's approach. And that that training and consisted of leadership and being able to resolve problems within the group. Because that's the key thing. If you're able to manage conflict within your organization, you can sustain it yeah. and accomplish the goal. So he taught us how to do that and how to give assignments to different people and people should follow their assignments and their roles. For example, um, <laughs> we did not allow the medical students at Meharry to go on demonstrations with us where we would get arrested. They were there as uh, students and they participated in our you know, organization in Nashville but we didn't want to have to uh, have our medical students in jail, missing classes. Now the seminary students, we wanted all of them to go to jail. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them were just gonna spend the rest of their life uh, 
you know, preaching off of jailhouse letters, <laughs> epistles. <laughs> so, so they needed to know what it was like, you know, to be in jail, the practical experience, okay? Yeah. Now, while we were in jail, we were not ordinary prisoners. We were not just doing time. What we did was organize our day. For example, uh, we had prayer in the morning before breakfast, and we had breakfast, and after breakfast, we start our classes. Yeah, we had classes. In jail. We were students. So if you were a biology major, you know, we assigned you to give a lecture in biology for an hour, and we had a chance to go back and forth with you. And we learned more on these subjects than we did in the classroom. Because we had um, plenty of opportunity to ask questions, have discussions. And then we went on after lunch. After we ate our lunch at 12 o'clock, and everything was routine in jail, uh, we had what we call a quiet period. Period of meditation, but also a period where you look at whether or not the life that you're living was consistent with the goals that you were trying to reach. So you had an appointment with yourself. And I remember they brought mail one time, you know, right after lunch, and the jailer started calling out names, you know, because they would send us letters uh, while we were in jail. Yeah. And uh, I told him, oh, this is not the time. He said, well, I'll throw it in the trash. So, well, do what you have to do. This is our quiet period. Now, we had the quiet period so we could meditate, but we also realized that the blood drained off your brain when you ate food uh, to help digest your food, and that was not the best time for you to do any serious thinking. Okay? Yeah. That was the time to let your food digest. Then we went on to uh, the next period, and we had uh, another lecture from an English major. And so all of our I, you know, time slots were taken up. And then at night, after we finished eating dinner, we had the preaching time come on. And the last hour of the night was the comedians. <laughs> so we always went to bed with a laugh, uh, you know, on our faces from the comedians. And uh, some were very good comedians. So anyway, uh, we learn to organize our own schedules, all right? Like, for example, even when we had our meetings, our group meetings, I had a very specific role in the group meetings, and that was to observe the people talking to uh, and discussing things, and some were, you know, uh, saying things that others might disagree with, and so my job was to sense when two people, okay, or more than two, uh, of, might have said something offensive and made somebody angry. So if I observed that, we would not end the meeting. And I would negotiate and mediate until the two came to some, you know, uh, friendly attitude towards each other. Because you don't want folks in the movement with you and they got some things against you. 
you know what I mean, or some attitudes. <laughs> you know, no, we had to all be on one accord. And uh, the Quakers, one of the civic, uh, physics professor was a Quaker, and we used to go to their house at night when we had late night meetings. And uh, Fusen, Nelson and Miriam Fusen. So we learned the idea of consensus. So that's how we made decisions, was a consensus. Okay, so these are basic things that we learned. We drew from many different sources. Martin Luther King used to take us to Frogmore, South Carolina, okay, near Beaufort. And he used to go to the blackboard. In those days they had blackboards. You know, they, these days they have whiteboards, and, but they had white chalk, you know, instead of markers. And he used to go to the blackboard and he used to teach us. Now, first of all, what he learned from Gandhi. Let me tell you what he learned from Gandhi. First of all, he learned that you could not bring about change, social change, unless you were able to win the support and the sympathy of the majority. So he had to work on Britain, okay? When he was able to win them over, then they were able to, okay, change their attitude and policies towards, you know, India. He also learned from uh, Gandhi that you have to strengthen your spirit. You don't just go along and do whatever you need to do, etc. You had to stop and pause, and you had to strengthen your spirit. You had to give food. Like you give food for thought, you have to feed your soul. So it will not be, you know, uh, immune. So you had to recognize the fact that by having these kind of exercises, for example, that were important in strengthening you. So that's what we were doing in Nashville. Yeah, we were learning how to do this thing. Yeah. And we would practice it. Uh, when we first went down to sit in, uh, information gathering, that was another thing. When we went down to sit in, the first sit in we had was not a protest. It was a test. Because part of gathering information is understanding how your opponent is going to respond. Yeah, I'm not a football coach, but I understand it very well. The more you know about your opponent's potential behavior, the more you can stay in control of the situation. See, the meditation is staying in control of yourself. All right? Information gathering is being able to understand your opponents. That's why they always look at the game tape. All right. So in the movement, that's what we were doing. When we sat in the first time, we wanted to see how the people down there were going to respond. Then we would come back and we would call role play. We would go through a role play situation, all right, fine. 
So that's uh, a couple of things I want to say, and I'm going to make mine short. So I'm going to make two other points. One is, I was with Martin Luther King in Memphis on the April 4th, that morning. I was with him. I was with him the night before, and he uh, was called away because we were working on a press statement because he was going to open up the campaign office in Washington, D.C. at the Poor People's Campaign. He had appointed me, as I said there, as program administrator and also the national, you know, head of the Poor People's Campaign. And I didn't know he was going to do all this when I went down to work for him, but he made me in charge of, oh, I should tell you this, you look at a person who has supervised Hosea Williams, Jim Bevel. You see why they're laughing, don't you? And guess who else? Jesse Jackson. You were the supervisor. I was it. Martin Luther King appointed me their supervisor. That's it. And you had your hands full. Yeah, really. So anyway, I've done this. I've uh, since that time I've left Martin Luther King. On April 4th, he sent me to oh, do the press conference because he had to stay and do the march over again in Memphis. So I, uh, I went, uh, the last words I had with Dr. King that morning when we finished the press statement, uh, he said, uh, now Lafayette, um, you go ahead and um, to Washington, D.C., and uh, I'll be along later. You do the press conference, I'll be along later. And he said, now, the next movement we're going to have is to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence for further discussion. So he was talking about the global thing and institutionalizing it and teaching people nonviolence. And he'd come to the conclusion that that was the way we were going to make the basic changes. So I said, okay. I went on to Washington, D.C., and he was shot while I was in flight. When I got there, um, Walter Fontaine was not there to pick me up at the airport, and I knew something was wrong, so I called the office, and a riot was out there. And guess what? Walter Fontroy and Stokely Carmichael were out there trying to quell the riots. Stokely Carmichael. Okay? Yeah. 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 So uh, I decided after all that was over, we had to do a funeral, we had to do the garbage worker strike, and conclude that, and then we had to do this Poor People's Campaign without Martin Luther King. So we did, you know, the best we could in accomplishing some goals. Marion Wright Edelman was very key in helping to us to accomplish the goals. So what do I do? I'm so Dr. Going. Lafayette, is it mm -hmm. okay if I break in now, or you have one more thought? One more thought. You got it. So I had to decide what was I going to do with my life, okay? She said, I had to make sure that Martin Luther King's life did not end his work, that he left enough there for us to carry on. 
into nationalizing. I don't have time to tell you all the things that we've done on the international level, but Colombia, they were killing seven inmates a day in uh, Bella Vista prison. We went into the prison, okay, and we quelled the killings. You're looking at somebody who was kidnapped by the FARC, okay? Yeah, and uh, I can tell you how to get out of being kidnapped, okay? <laughs> no, I, I know how to do that. So they let me out, but they kept the others, unfortunately, okay? Nigeria, okay, 60,000 people. We, uh, oh, in fact, some of them came to Houston, the Nigerians who finished the nonviolent course and the amnesty program. Some of you know about that? No. Okay. Well, we'll tell you about it when we have our training. Okay. But thank you. Well, I do want to ask you both a couple of questions. Uh, and I want to start with you, Dr. Lafayette, because as, as I sort of asked you in the beginning, how is it after being trained in nonviolence, learning the enemy as well as you did, being tested, how was it still possible to stand there and basically take it, knowing that the police were against you, knowing that there were many whites out there against you? How did, how did you avoid that very human reaction of either you know, wanting to punch back or running away? How did nonviolence in that training keep you um, from reacting the way most of us would have? Well, the most important thing in the training is to be holistic, to be able to understand the total context. Like for example, one of the first things that Gandhi and Martin Luther King did was to help people understand how they contributed to their own catastrophe. So that's the first thing you have to do is help people understand how they help to support and create the problem. So withdrawal, like the bus boycott in Montgomery, you gotta have some economic withdrawal, okay? And that's the thing that, uh, that's one of the factors, but uh, based on being able to uh, deal with the violence, if you really want to know uh, the the schematic part of it and how it functions, I have a book, and I have a few of them here, called In Peace and Freedom, My Journey in Selma. It's an autographed copy of some books here, and they're available, but, and they'll make an announcement later, but there is a systematic approach to it. First of all, you have to realize that your worth is not how much material things that you can accumulate. Your real worth is how valuable you are to others. Mm -hmm. That determines how valuable you are to life. And even if you have to give your life for a worthwhile cause, 
you become even more worthwhile. I mean, you just come wild with it, okay? So when you look at Gandhi, and you look at Martin Luther King, you look at Abraham Lincoln, you look at, okay, the people who have given their lives. Now, you have to be, uh, uh, use techniques so you don't just say, let me die. No, no, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. What you have to do in every instance to see how you can get your opponent to see another you. Because the one they see is through their evil eyes. And what you have to do is use your eyes, okay, to transform them. I'll give you one example and I'll move on. Birmingham uh, Freedom Rides. We were continuing the Freedom Rides out of Nashville and went down to Birmingham and the bus drivers would not drive the bus to Montgomery. Uh, we lined up because the bus said, you know, Montgomery, they wouldn't, they wouldn't no. Yeah. So we ended up staying in a bus station all night long and we went to sleep, you know, because we were tired and worn out. You know how that is. So one of the Ku Klux Klan members, they came and swarmed the bus and this one Klan member got some water out of the fountain. We were in the white bus station waiting room, the waiting room. So they had water coolers, not in the colored, right. okay, but that one. Got some cold water and came while I was asleep and threw that water on me. I woke up, I thought I was dreaming because he had this white robe on and this hood. <laughs> and then once I realized it was the Ku Klux Klan had thrown water on me, I looked at him in his eye and I said, thank you. And he looked at me. I told him, thank you for throwing water on me. Well, it was a good idea for him to keep me awake because I needed to watch the class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's how you respond. So guess what? He didn't throw any more water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one way that you can cause people to change is unexpected response. That's what you have to work at. How can you respond in such a way that you're giving that person a better example? Okay? But you gotta stay in control of yourself first, even with cold water on you. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, Madam Ambassador, we've been talking so much about Gandhi and Martin Luther King, but we live in a time when our world has become incredibly violent, when uh, mass shootings are almost every day. I, I must admit in the news business, unless it ends up being many people, we almost don't cover it anymore. Three or four is not enough. So what is the role of nonviolence in social movements now, and is it even a feasible idea? Well, I think Reverend Lafayette has just talked about how nonviolence can help you uh, understand your opponents better, to uh, size up the terrain, and, uh, and also, uh, you know, like I mentioned about moral and political jiu-jitsu, uh, kind of disturb the equilibrium of your opponents. So uh, I know that terrible things happen in today's world and you have the mass shootings and the senseless violence that goes on all around us. 
And I think that is all the more reason that we need to relearn the lessons that nonviolence taught us and relearn the way of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And I sincerely believe it. I mean, we can all throw up our hands and say that, you know, there's violence all around us. It's acquired proportions that we cannot deal with. But nothing acquires proportions that you cannot deal with unless, yeah. you know, it's some act of God or something that yeah. you can't really address or challenge. But otherwise, I think there is always a way for nonviolence. And there is a relevance for nonviolence in our time. And uh, if we are to move forward and create that culture of peace that Gandhi and King spoke of, uh, you know, you just have to read uh, Tolstoy, Tolstoy who yes. inspired Gandhi. You read his novel, War and Peace, and you understand what a terrible thing war is, mm -hmm. what a terrible mm -hmm. thing violence is. So I think we need to reread and learn from history, otherwise we are condemned to repeat it, as they say. Have, have either of you seen any current examples, would you say, of, of, of uh, people learning to use nonviolence in a way to combat so many of the issues we see? Well, definitely in our part of the world, in, in India, the, you know, his, Gandhi's legacy or Gandhi's uh, you know, ideas have been carried forward. We have people who work uh, with the farmers, with the peasants, who work in the environmental sector, who try to protect you know, our environmental wealth, yes. and who kind of become the collective conscience of the people. When you see something that is defined as progress, but really disturbs you know, the natural balance of creation. Mm -hmm. And I think there, there are lots of people, there are men and women, who are going about their lives very quietly, unsung heroes and heroines. And you've ha you have a person like Aruna Roy, who was a member of the civil service like me, yes. and who quit the civil service after a few years and went off to the state of Rajasthan. It's a desert state, very water short and began to work with the tribals there, work with the people there. And she is that one woman who is responsible for bringing into being the legislation that led to the right to information mm -hmm. in our country, you, what you call the Freedom of Information Act. Mm -hmm. These are you know, pioneers that continue to inspire us. Mm -hmm. And what about you? Do you feel as though you've seen it in action? You're, you're a man who still studies nonviolence today. Yes. And I also train people to be leaders to set up institutions, but also how to train people to manage conflict in their lives. I give you, there are many examples, but we don't have time, but I'll give you one example that you can do your own research on. Watertown, mm -hmm. Massachusetts. What they've done, uh, one of my trainers, a school teacher, an artist, mm -hmm. you would love her, uh, Ruth Henry, uh, musician also. Uh, she uh, called me there because she had this great idea and it came to fruition. And that was the idea of training uh, teachers throughout the school system, the entire district, in nonviolence. So that was part of the curriculum. Okay? And the, uh, the thing that really fascinated me, and I, you, I'll understand why I got this smile on my face, is because she also wanted to train the students to be trainers. Uh, 
not just to, to talk to them about it, but to teach no. them the skills. Yeah. And the thing that blows my mind, the idea of getting the policemen and the security also trained mm -hmm. the entire police force. And then you put together this team of trainers, a teacher, a little student, and a police officer. Can you imagine that? This was your team of trainers, and their job was to train all of the teachers and all of the students and the parents throughout the school district, and the superintendent has agreed. And they've already started it. And one of the first things they did, which you would like, is they got all the students together and did a whole mural on a wall and putting their own things on there. So that's just one example, okay, of what's going on. Uh, Lawndale in Chicago, all right, West Side Chicago, in this Lawndale High School, my trainers start training and putting the curriculum in that uh, school system and the incidents of conflict and violence in that school plummeted. plummeted. That's great. Yeah, I can give you more examples, but it's working. That's why we work it. And uh, somebody in, uh, where was I? I was in Bethlehem. And uh, one of the people in Bethlehem was a, a woman who was on the city council. And she was a cousin to another uh, woman who from New York who had been training with me. And she said, Dr. I, I was trying to get some lunch. She said, uh, could you uh, explain to my cousin, uh, she doesn't think nonviolence will work. And I was trying to get some lunch. <laughs> I said, well, I agree with your cousin. <laughs> and she just was so chagrined. So they came over to my table and I said, no, nonviolence does not work you, unless you have somebody who can work it. Train pilots by airplanes. Otherwise, airplanes don't get off the ground. So nonviolence can't get off the ground by folks talking about it. You've got to put it into action and make it work. And you've got to have people who are trained to do that. Yeah. Um, I've got a question here that's a little bit complicated, so I hope you'll bear with me. Uh, with both Gandhi and with Dr. King, there were clear objectives to their resistance. Obviously in India, it was the end of British rule there, and here it was the end of Jim Crow and segregation. But today it feels as though a lot of the injustices that uh, we face are more subtle, more interrelated. So it's not as easy to have a common enemy. You're not quite sure what it is you're fighting against. So as such, how do political and grassroots movements function today in the social political system. Do you feel as you watch some of the things that are happening, especially with young people, that perhaps um, what we need is a clearer way to kind of fight uh, some common ills? I know that's a complicated question. David no. would like me to ask it, so I did. <laughs> well, I think when you look at India, uh, it's not just a vast country. Uh, it's a very complex country, and it's a difficult country to govern also because there is so much diversity, so much plurality, yes. which uh, obviously is a good thing if uh, you need to manage it and you need to ensure that everybody hangs together, uh, which has been a unique achievement of Indian democracy over the last 70 years, as mm -hmm. the Consul General mentioned. 
I think the challenge for India today is exactly what you said, at the level of the grassroots. What we can do to not only uh, embed that belief and faith in the system we created in these last 70 years, mm -hmm. that respect for diversity, uh, turning your back to intolerance, uh, saying no to fundamentalism, uh, embracing the other. I think that is what we need to inculcate even more deeply in the minds of our young people. India is basically a young nation, as you all know. 65% yes. uh, or even 70% of the population is below the age of 30. Wow. I would say, you know, enormous, a lot of young people. Yes. Not only are they looking for better opportunities, a brighter tomorrow, uh, skills to develop so that they find jobs to do, uh, they're increasingly becoming more and more educated. We have many, many more children in school today. Mm -hmm. I would say 90 to 92% of India's children are in school today. And that is a huge number, millions yes. of young people who have to find meaning in their future. Uh, many of them will do. <coughs> India always finds a way of, I think, self-correcting itself, healing itself. Mm -hmm. That is the unique uh, strength that we possess. And I hope that will continue to resonate as far as the country's future is concerned. But I think this is where we need to inculcate faith in the young people in what the meaning of democracy is. Uh, you know, uh, understanding the value of our constitution, that that is the supreme religion. Mm -hmm. I always say to my young, counterparts, my young uh, brothers and sisters in India, that you, that is our true religion, mm -hmm. inculcate belief in that. We the people. as That we really are, we, we, we are, the people. We, we the people. Who are we? Why are we the people? Yes. How can we be, you know, better citizens of this country? And so I, when I see young people working, let's say, uh, in the field of education, I have a young niece who's been teaching in the slums of Mumbai. Mm -hmm. And she's been teaching children, uh, I would say adolescents, older teenagers who've been to jail and back, and who will greet you in class with the most, the choicest of insults, the most yes. colorful language. And this young woman of 2021 faces them and is able to teach them. Mm -hmm. I think that is ingraining inner strength in yourself as you face that kind of hostility and you're able to win them over ultimately because you stand there and you are able to teach them and give them something that benefits them, they un begin to understand. So much so that their parents will come with packed lunch for you <laughs> at the start of every class because they realize. So I think it's these little, little stories I think that make it different. You know, the young human rights lawyers who work with Rohingya refugees uh, who are, you know, beginning to give them a voice, or at least represent them in the courts. I think these, if we can do that and multiply these, these little points of light, as it were, yeah. I think we'll be able to do Well, it. that sounds very hopeful. I'm gonna let you have the last word. Are you also hopeful that some of these messages have made their way down through uh, the years now, and that you're seeing perhaps uh, some germination among younger people, or among people out there, trying to battle uh, larger issues now? Yes, and I think Parkland, okay, mm -hmm. will be a the good Parkland example. students, yes. Yeah, those students. And the fact that they're standing up, and the women are standing up, it's over. I mean, I'm, I'm taking my, uh, 
Why did God make women in the first place? Uh, you know, size reproduction. No, no, no. Right. Say yeah. No. no. Well, yeah. he says because they're smart. And we're not talking about uh, some illusion. Women have more nodules on their brains. Ask the doctor. Okay? So they have the ability to uh, do more than one thing at the same time. I got five sisters. <laughs> and see, my grandmother was the one that taught me most of the things I know about organizing and everything. You know, and I followed behind her, okay, when I was a little boy, everywhere she went, you know, to see the lawyers and the stores and all that kind of business. Uh, my next book is going to be on grandma. But the more, they, women play, uh, they are, they are better jazz musicians than men. Did you know that? No, I did. Yeah, because see, they can, uh, uh, I don't want to make a long speech, you know yourself. They talk all at the same time. <laughs> I got five sisters. They carry on four conversations at the same time. And they be trying to ask me something. I say, well, I, could, I, I can't hear all y'all. <laughs> but women don't have any problem. They can just talk back and forth and carry on those conversations. That's why they can do jazz, because they can blend melodies, right. several things, okay? The next thing is that But you that feel like men, the women's movement and the young people's movement against it's guns? It's over. Mm -hmm. It's over. You think uh, Michelle out there is just talking and running her mouth? Michelle Obama. I yeah, that's okay. what I'm talking okay. about. <laughs> How you think? How you think Obama got elected? <laughs> <laughs> he would probably agree with you. <laughs> when those women come together, now it's going to be a great problem in terms of managing conflict. Okay, because they don't mind doing a lot of fussing and stuff. You know what I'm talking about? But once you can manage that, and they agree on where they're going. Now, my last point is this. One of the things that can make a difference is to help young people, as she was saying, understand their experiences. It's one thing to have the experience, but it's the interpretation of the experience that makes the person. Yeah. What do they take away from the experiences that they have? Okay? And that's the thing that's important. That's why we got to stop and listen to these young folk. Mm -hmm. You somebody getting quiet? Uh, you ain't seen no quiet until I get around some young folk. Because I want to hear what they got to say. You've got to know it. Can't go visiting grandmama and be watching television and doing your computer thing and your. Uh, uh, no, you need to be talking to these young people. See what's coming out of them. What are they thinking? That kind of thing, et cetera. Now, my concrete suggestion, and the last thing here, is that we need to create a model legislature. Young people, ages 12 to 17. They need to run candidates and elect their representatives. Okay? All right? You could do that here. All right? And then what you do is, it's a youth party. You got to call it. Don't don't get no uh, partisan politics 
in it, make it a new party, the youth party. And then you meet every month, once a month, and you have a party, and you have a cake for those who turn 18. Okay? And you can get that from the local uh, stores and stuff. <laughs> okay? And then what you do is invite one of the people from the legislature to come, or any elected official, to come once a month now, okay? Might end up with more than one, and let them talk about what's going on in the actual legislature. Okay, with their elected official as a youth and the others. Yeah. And then you'd vote on what they're talking about before they vote. I'd I'm like, gonna let you I'd have like just to, the last 30 seconds. I'd like to add to that. You know, you asked about masculinity and femininity and Reverend Lafayette said that the women's movement is over. Coming from the field of diplomacy as I do, I've always f felt the need for a more feminine aspect uh, to public policy, yes. a more feminine aspect. Uh, when you look at our countries, I remember our first Prime Minister, India's pr first Prime Minister, Nehru, Jawaharlal Nehru, used to say that the soul of India is feminine. And the soul of a country is often feminine, I think. But the masculinity that you see around you today especially is associated, and no offense to the men in the audience, to, you know, with bellicosity, with aggression, you know, being masculine, being tough. But what about the feminine aspects of our identity as humans? And I think we need more of that when it comes to the application of public policy, to the formulation of public policy, to the resolution of conflict, uh, to the bringing about of peace, because women are wired differently. Yeah. They are wired to think in that more 360 degree fashion yes. that looks at life as a composite whole. Well, I'm going to let you have the last word here. We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of different areas, but I hope for our audience at least, uh, you felt as though it was uh, somewhat hopeful uh, that, that uh, the whole idea of, of nonviolence and, and a different approach to uh, resolving conflict continues even to this day. I'm gonna turn it back over to David Leslie. If you all would, please help me give a round of applause to Ambassador Rao and Dr. Lafayette. You have your, oh, please, please, oh, no, please, I'm sorry. Oh. You guys. Thank you. It's been fun. We've enjoyed it so much. As we uh, conclude you. this evening's program, I also want to add my thanks for you all being here tonight. I know it took a lot to get here. Uh, collective miles, uh, collective competing interest, uh, but I'll tell you, you graced us with a very important axiom that we practice here, and that is speaking in the first person. So often in the world that we live in, we don't have that opportunity, and I think your concluding remarks just remind us of being in a position where we are able, whatever age, gender, race, sexual orientation, religion, political persuasion, we have that basic human dignity right to speak in the first person. So thanks for modeling that for us today. The other thing I want to say is that 
in this context of Mahatma Gandhi and Dr. King, what we realize as we sit here today that that little, I, th I can't remember what you said, almost like a laser beam across eons of time never stopped. I don't think it stopped with the beginning of creation. There's always been at least one voice in every spot reminding us of an alternative to what we see amongst us all the time. And that commitment to being part of a movement of creating equity, peace, and justice through nonviolence, it is timeless. But for each of us, it's our responsibility here, even if we don't see the culmination in our lifetime. I think that's what you reminded us tonight, too. And to use the language in both, I think, in public service and religion and others that we oftentimes forget that idea of vocational calling. That this is something that is a lifetime of perfection. You never get it quite there, but it's something that we're called to do, sometimes beyond our understanding. We just sort of are there, and then it's a lifetime of days. And again, thank you for that, because this is a lot of that carrying that, that energy as we take it back into the world. You gave us a little fuel to keep us going. So thank you again. Can we give one more big thanks to all the, thank you. Now, as we conclude tonight, it's my privilege and pleasure to present to you the Philip Hall Singers. May we have the Philip Hall Singers come on out. And I think it's, it's most appropriate that we started this evening with music. And we end this evening with music. Now, here's the instruction I alluded to at the beginning. They're going to start a number tonight here. And in just a few minutes, they're going to start making their split up the, the aisles. What I ask is they move up each aisle, follow right behind them and join in the song, hum along, sing along if you know the words. And they're going to sing us out to the party on the plaza. Ah, All right? right? And then we'll continue the conversation and your musical gifts. I want to welcome you to the Rothko Chapel. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved.